0: So, all right, let's pray together. God, thanks for your word. Uh, We believe that wherever your word is explained, your voice is heard, and so let your voice be heard here. God, just even knowing a fraction of what my friends in this room walked through this week, um, God, I just pray that we would uh, be an encouragement to one another, but most importantly, that you would speak to us in the midst of that, that we would come to trust that when built on you, we will not be shaken. Help us today, Jesus. Amen. Uh, This Halloween, October 31st, uh, marks the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. So 500 years ago, a a guy named Martin Luther, who was a Roman Catholic monk, uh, is the TV just freaking out? Okay. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, uh, Roman Catholic monk really wrestled with his sense of shame and not being good enough. And so while one day reading Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is from faith, from first to last, for scripture says it is by faith you have been saved. Martin Luther reads this and his brain, I mean, his mind is blown. His heart, uh, John Wesley, who founded Methodism many years later, would say his heart was strangely warmed. As Martin Luther came to understand the gospel for the first time, a monk in the Roman Catholic Church, the spiritual of the spiritual, came to understand the gospel for the first time after being a monk for many, many years. Martin Luther wrote down what we now call the 95 theses, 95 statements that he wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church with, and he went and he nailed those on the front door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany, and that began the Protestant, Refor- Protestant Reformation of which we are a part. You know Jesus because a guy named Martin Luther nailed a piece of paper to a door 500 years ago this Halloween. Now, I bring this up because, well, first of all, half of you are asleep already. Uh, because what does Martin Luther have to deal with me? But I, I bring it up because how we respond to even that little historical tidbit uh, reveals a lot about us. It reveals what we think about our past. You see, there's two ways to think about our past, our tradition as Christians. Uh, and, and, and one of them is to let's run back. Let's go back because it was better back then. Uh, but well, we'll get to why it wasn't in a second. But the other option is let's leave our past behind as quickly as possible. Let's be modern. Let's be contemporary. Uh, let's, there's, there's two kinds of people. Those that would beat a path into the past because it was safer and better, and those were the good old days, and there are those who would beat a path out of the past because it's a time that was bigoted and we're now more sophisticated and, and truthful Now, these positions, they're not directly connected to any one generation. Like this sermon, those of you who are familiar with Grace Campus knows that it's predominantly people over 60, but it's not just people over 60 that are like, take me back to the past, let's sing to the organ, let's go. Uh, Because there's a lot of people over 60 here at Regen that are really excited about what we're doing. Um, No, because even when I was at Moody, Uh, And in my undergrad, there was a big part of me that always said, you know, let's just go back to like Acts chapter two. Let's go back to the early church. It was simpler then. It was easier. We were in each other's houses. We were breaking the bread. We were teaching one another. It wasn't until one of my professors of church history said, you know, the the downside to going back to the early church times would also be that that was when they were taking Christians, stringing them up on the street and lighting them on fire for their parties. Um, So it's not to say that going back isn't any better. Uh, going back isn't just a quote-unquote older generation thing, it's, it's just not true. The, the, these attitudes, let's go back as fast as we can, let's move forward as fast as we can, kind of rise to the surface today in our text, Nehemiah 9 and 10, because Nehemiah 9 and 10 is a text all about our past. It is a past, it is text all about Israel's history, which at first glance seems totally irrelevant to us, And yet raises important questions about what is the purpose of tradition and history among the people of God? What is the point of the story that we are inheritors of, not just the 500-year Protestant Reformation, but... The monastic movement of the 1200s, the, 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 the early monastic movement of the 700s. I mean, the early gospel movements of the 500 years after Jesus died. What is the point of this? What is the point of the Old Testament? Thousands of years of stories of people whose names we can't pronounce. What is the purpose of our past? We're going to look at that at Nehemiah 9. Because in Nehemiah 9 and 10, we watch Israel recite their past. And in reciting their past, they live differently in the present. It's fascinating. So look with me at Nehemiah chapter 9. Remember that Nehemiah, the main character of our book, he has returned to the province of Judah, namely the city of Jerusalem, because he has heard reports that his people are in great trouble and disgrace. Now he returns there to rebuild the wall, a political move, a national security move to be sure. He goes to restore the wall around the city of Jerusalem, but in the process of rebuilding it, just as the wall was almost done, Nehemiah discovers that the trouble and grace of his people was nothing about a wall. In fact, it had everything to do with what was going on in the walls of their chests. It was about their hearts. It was about hearts that were far from God. It was about a covenant relationship between Israel and Yahweh that was fractured. And so So the fixer-upper for Nehemiah in the last half of this book is, how do I get my people back into a right relationship with God? Well, in Nehemiah 8, he calls in a special contractor. He calls in Ezra the scribe. Ezra reads the book of the law to the people, probably the book of Deuteronomy. And if you were here with us last week, you remember we talked about how they heard the word of God read. And as they heard the word of God read, they heard God's voice, and they began to weep. They wept. What's funny, though, is they're told not to weep. They say, don't weep about this. Why? Because today is a day for feasting. When they started weeping at the beginning of the month of October, uh, today we're going to look at the end of the month of October. That was not a time for weeping. But he says at the end of the month, this is a time for weeping. Nehemiah 9 is a time for weeping. And Nehemiah 9 opens this way. On October 31, the people assembled again. And this time they fasted and dressed in burlap, and sprinkled dust on their heads. This was a traditional Jewish way of showing mourning. You put burlap on, you put ash across your forehead. By the way, that's connected to our practice of Ash Wednesday. Those of you that know that, we do a cross. That's where that comes from. They sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. Check this out, verse 3. They remained standing in place for three hours, while the book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them. And then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshipped the Lord their God. They stood for three hours, and they recite their history. And they recite their history not as a way of, look at all the great things we've done. They recite their history not as, look at how important we are. They recite, excuse me, they recite their history in, in Nehemiah 9 as, look at the many, many ways we've screwed up. Look at the many, many ways we've fallen short. I'm actually going to read all of their kind of prayer of confession to you in Nehemiah 9. And if they could stand up for three hours, you can stand up for five minutes. So go ahead and stand up while we read this. It says, may your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. For you alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserve them all and the angels of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him from Ur of the Chaldees and renamed him Abraham. When he had proved himself faithful, you made a covenant with him to give him and his descendants the land of the Canaanites and Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. And you have done what you promised, for you are always true to your word. You saw the misery of our ancestors in Egypt and you heard their cries from beside the Red Sea. You displayed miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh and his officials and all his people for you knew how arrogantly they were treating our ancestors. You have a glorious reputation that has never been forgotten. There's so many good lines in Nehemiah 9. You divided the sea for your people so they could walk through on dry land and then you hurled their enemies into the depths of the sea. They sank like stones beneath the mighty waters. You led our ancestors by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night so that they could find their way. You came down at Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and commands that were good. You instructed them concerning your holy Sabbath, and you commanded them through Moses, your servant, to obey all your commands, decrees, and instructions. You gave them bread from heaven when they were hungry and water from the rock when they were thirsty. You commanded them to go and take possession of the land you had sworn to give them. But our ancestors were proud and stubborn, and they paid no attention to your commands. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to take them back to slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry, rich and unfailing love. That's a direct quote from Exodus 34. You did not abandon them even when they made an idol shaped like a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. They committed terrible blasphemies, but in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud still led them forward day by day and the pillar of fire showed them the way through the night. You sent your good spirit to instruct them and you did not stop giving them manna from heaven or water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And then you helped our ancestors conquer kingdoms and nations and you placed your people in every corner of the land. They took over the land of King of Sihon of the Heshbon and King Og of Bashan. You made their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and brought them into the land you had promised to their ancestors. They went in and took possession of the land. You subdued whole nations before them. Even the Canaanites who inhabited the land were powerless. Your people could deal with these nations and their kings as they pleased. Our ancestors captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took over houses full of goodlings and cisterns already drug and vineyards already dug and cisterns and vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate until they were full and grew fat and enjoyed themselves and all your blessings. Sorry, Zach, to tell you in the Old Testament it was a good thing to be fat. I'm just trying to be biblical, guys. But despite all this. They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets and warned them to return, not to return to you. And they committed terrible blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who made them suffer. But in their time of trouble, they cried to you and you heard them from heaven. In your great mercy, you sent them liberators who rescued them from their enemies. But as soon as they were at peace, you, your people again committed evil in your sight. And once more, you let their enemies conquer them. Yet whenever your people turned and cried to you again for help, you listened once more from heaven, and in your wonderful mercy you rescued them many times. You warned them to return to your law, but they became proud and obstinate and disobeyed your commands. They did not follow your regulations by which people find life if only they obey. They stubbornly turned their backs on you and refused to listen. In your love, you were patient with them for many years. You sent your spirit who warned them through the prophets, but still, but still they wouldn't listen. So once again, you allowed the peoples of the land to conquer them, but in your great mercy, you did not destroy them completely or abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. And now, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love, another direct quote from Exodus 34. Do not let all the hardships we have suffered seem insignificant to you. Great trouble has come upon us and our kings and leaders and priests and prophets and ancestors, all of your people from the days when the kings of Assyria first triumphed over us until now. Every time you punished us, and you, but you gave us only what we deserve, we have seen greatly our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to the warnings in your commands and laws. Even while they had their own kingdom, they did not serve you. Though you showed your, showered your goodness on them, you gave them a large, fertile land, but they refused to turn from their wickedness. So now, today, we are slaves in the land of plenty that you gave our ancestors for their enjoyment. We are slaves here in this good land. As if to say, it's one thing to be slaves over there, it's another thing to be slaves here. <laughs> The lush produce of this land piles up in the hand of kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They have power over us and our livestock. We serve them at their pleasure and we are in great misery. You can have a seat. It was four and a half minutes and I read fast. So a couple things about that. The first is that we are the they. We are the they, which means you and I put in the same situation would respond the exact same way, which is what obstinate, stubborn, and hard-hearted. If we were to summarize Nehemiah 9, four words, God, good, people, bad, right? At every turn of God's graciousness, the people of Israel turn their backs. At every turn of God's grace, they just gave him the cold shoulder. At every turn, they found ways to be disobedient. At every turn, they found ways to be rebellious. At every turn, they found ways to say no. And as they confess their sins, it's almost like they begin to see themselves clearly. We talked about that last week. As they reflect on their past, they resolve to live differently in the present. It's not like, oh, well, now that we heard that story, let's all go home and keep living. No, they hear this story and they vow to live differently. In fact, look at chapter nine, verse 38. It says, it says, the people responded, in view of all this, we are making a solemn promise and putting it in writing. On this sealed document are the names of our leaders and Levites and priests. In view of all of this, in view of God's great mercy against the backdrop of our rebellion, in view of all of this, we're gonna make a vow. In the first half of chapter 10, or the first third, it's again a list of names. It's a list of the leaders of Israel signing their names onto this vow. And then in verses 30 through 39 of chapter 10, they make a handful of commitments, largely under the categories of purity and holiness. Well, purity and generosity, excuse me. Purity and generosity. They say, we're going to break away from these bad relationships. We're not going to engage in marriages like this anymore. We're going to operate differently in this way, and we're going to operate more generously. The recitation of their past called them to live differently in the present. They reflect on their past and they, ref- they do just like you would with the mirror. They see the sun and they catch it with a small mirror and angle the beam into the future. They say, these are the commitments we're going to make as we move forward, as we reflect on our past, as we look at our story, as we look at what God has done in and among us, we're going to live differently. We're going to live with purity and we're going to live with generosity. You know, Psalm 119 verse 32, it says this, I love this verse. It says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. As, as Israel recites their past, they discover that like the Grinch, their hearts are three sizes too small. They discover that their hearts have shrunk they need to enlarge their hearts they need to enlarge their hearts so that they can run on the road of head to enlarge their hearts they recite their past and as they recite and remember their past their hearts grow bigger. They become more holy and more generous. The, the, the action of God in our personal history ought to make us more holy and more generous, not more stingy, more opinionated, more drama, more divisive. Following Jesus then is, from a certain perspective, it's, it's not a walk, although there's a lot of walk imagery in the New Testament, it's also a run. And to run, your heart has to be able to take it. In order to run, your heart has to be able to take it. Cardiovascular exercise, that's what it does. It expands the muscles of your heart so it can pump more blood so that you can run faster and endure longer. It, it, that's what cardiovascular does. I, I took like, so I work out at Zach's place. Again, I know you can tell. And, uh, and uh, I took like six weeks off this summer and I came back in about in the middle of September, Zach throws me a program and I do the top three exercises three times, boom, 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 boom. boom. And after the third time of the third exercise, I legit felt like I was going to puke. Like I'm not just saying like, oh Kyle, you like over exaggerate. No, like I literally am in Zach's place thinking, it's coming, I feel, I feel it rising, my mouth, it's like the spit is like running through it. And Zach has an intern right now, and so he's like, do you need some water? And I'm like, you know, like because I drink some, and i I successfully did not puke, and I successfully did not puke, but here's what happened: my heart shrunk, and the time that I wasn't at the gym, my heart shrunk, I couldn't keep up at that level anymore. My heart shrunk, and so, in order to run, the way that God has called Israel to run in order for you and I to run, we have to have hearts that are enlarged and in reciting their past, their hearts are enlarged. And so here's kind of what we learn in Nehemiah 9 and 10, that the past is not a museum, the past is a gym. The past is not a museum, the past is a gym. The past is not something to be cherished or sentimentalized or recalled fondly, because it's not a museum. It's not a place that we go to observe curiosities of an age-long past. And listen, this is an interesting sermon to preach to you because a lot of you are like, we're kind of running from Christians that behave that way. We're running from Christians that kind of care about past and old things and organs. But what we can't do is throw a baby out with the bathwater. We can't run so fast from the past that we miss out on what we're supposed to be given. The past is a gym, it's not a museum. The past is not to be used as an escape from our present And we use the past as an escape from our present when we forget that our past is about what God has done, not what we have accomplished, what we felt, not about people or places or things. When Israel reflects on their history, here's what they remember. They remember the good, good father who gave them every good thing, who made sure that they lacked nothing while they rebelled again and again and again. The, people, the past isn't about people, places, things, feelings, accomplishments. The past is about God, which is why the measure of the greatness of our past is found in our faithfulness in the present. The measure of the greatness of our past isn't in how we protect the past, honor the past, remember it. It isn't what we accomplished. It's not what it made us feel. The measure of the greatness of our past is our faithfulness in the present. The measure of the greatness of our past is the speed with which we run in the way of his commandments. And the reason this sermon is important to us is that right now we are writing history as a church. Right now, we are setting patterns that Luke will either love or hate when he turns 15. I mean, that's, that's as crystal clear as it gets. And I don't care what you like. I don't care what song you like. I don't care if you like this part about our church or that part about our church. I'm only ever going to do one thing. I'm going to always ensure that our church makes sense to the next person. You know, we used to say all the time as a church, and we backed off, and I sometimes feel guilty about that. We used to say the most important person in the room was the person that's not here yet. And then as leadership, we got together and we're like, well, that kind of sounds rude because if you did all that work to get in the room and now you're kind of like just another notch on the belt. But you know what? I don't care. The most important person in the room is the person that's not here yet. The most important person in the room is Luke Collins and what he thinks of our church 15 years from now. If whether or not we, as we write our history as a church together, make the gospel more or less compelling in the way that we behave Fifteen years from now, Luke's not going to care about sweatpants Sunday. He's not going to care about the summit Thanksgiving dinner. He's not going to care about the things that we, the things that we we did or we didn't do. He doesn't want us to sit him down and tell us, tell him stories about the past and how great it was. The only measure of the greatness of our past will be our faithfulness in that present. The past is not a mu- museum; it's a gym. The past is not something to be honored or cherished or protected. The past is something to be lived. In the present, Israel recites their past and they live differently in the present. It's a gym where we return time and time and time again to be trained in faithfulness. Why do you think every week we come back to this table? Why do we go back to the past? It's because as we eat the bread that Jesus broke, as we drink the cup that Jesus poured, we are trained for faithfulness in the present so let me tell you why you need a gym. Let me go back to these kind of two postures. There's the posture of let's return to the past because it was just so great, and there's the posture of, of, of let's move on into the future because that's better. And by the way, as we talk about the past, don't be thinking about the person at the church that you left that you don't like. This is for you, not for them. We don't listen to sermons in the third person. It's for us, not for them. For those who glamorize the past, who cherish it, who seek to protect and honor it, who want to return to it, this is what I say. By all means, please return to the past. Go, go back there. Just promise me that you're gonna come back having worked out. Promise me ca- that you'll come back having gone to the gym. When Zach was at a place called, that place in Niles called Physique, which we gotta have a conversation about how we decided to spell that word, but that's neither here nor there. I Z E with the line on top of it, uh, Physique. There was this kid who, uh, I would be in there three times a week with Zach, I'm sure he was there more, And, and he, I never saw him on a machine, I never saw him lift a weight, he was there before me, there after me, the only thing I ever saw was him like doing this in the mirror, right, and like snapping pictures of himself, and I'm thinking, people think this dude goes to the gym, he just takes pictures of himself. If you go back to the past and you don't come back more faithful, you haven't gone to the gym, you're just the kid that went and took pictures of old stuff and didn't learn from it. If you're gonna go to the past, go to the past, learn from it, by all means, do. Just don't be that kid that did that, it was so strange. I started trying to photobomb him, because I wanted to be like, maybe I can help him. Like, How do I let him know that this behavior is weird? But if you, now I'm gonna talk to those of us who wanna move on from the past more harshly. If you think the past is irrelevant, if you think the past is something we ought to move on from because those were worse times, those were more bigoted times, and in many respects that might be true, that, those were, that now we are more sophisticated and know better and smarter than we've ever been, we have to avoid what we would call chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery says that we know better than they did because we have rocket ships now. Don't you think Jesus would have changed his mind on insert hard teaching here? Because he didn't know the things that we knew then. He didn't know the things then that we know now. Guys, Jesus knew enough to rearrange molecules in water to turn it into wine. I think he was not surprised and is not surprised by anything that we're walking through now. So we want to run away from the past. We, we, want, to, we want to run away from all of this stuff. So that, and, and what we end up becoming is this tumbleweed that doesn't know where it's come from. It's totally rootless, it doesn't know where it's going, and so on it just goes in this happy little Jesus train where all we really do is like love everybody and hug and cuddle and snuggle. Like Jesus, I said this at Grace Church and everybody got it. Like you remember the Partridge family van? It was like bright color. The people of Jesus are not like jumping on the Partridge family van where it's like all fun and good times. And da- 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 There's hardness to who Jesus is. There's challenge. And to me, chronological snobbery is ultimately rooted in on how do we cut passages out of the Bible that just we don't want to deal with. Do you know that Thomas Jefferson did that? Thomas Jefferson took his New Testament and he cut out passages that he thought were stupid. And so his Bible had these gaps in it. We functionally live this way. That's what chronological snobbery says. Is there's no way that Jesus could have known. But the issue when we when we jettison our past, when we jettison our past, we forget and we cut ourselves off from what I would call personal trainers. Because when you go to the gym of the past, you meet great Christians who have walked the roads that you and I walk and did so faithfully because we're not the only generation of the church to struggle with addiction, with the isolation of singleness, with bad marriages, with financial anxiety, with the ugly depths of depression. When we jettison our past, we say no to the personal trainers that are over there. We don't get chances to meet Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was the most famous preacher in English history. Uh, In the 1800s, even as people's faith in Christ was eroding, his sermons were published on the front page of Monday's newspaper in London. Charles Spurgeon, most mornings, could barely get out of bed to preach. He battled with depression his whole life. When we jettison the past, we, we miss C.S. Lewis. We miss C.S. Lewis, who, who married his wife late in life, like in his 40s. Absolutely bonkers for this woman who dies of cancer only a handful of years later. If you want to read raw writing about grief, read A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis as he wrestles with the overwhelming pain of losing the love of his life. George Mueller, a guy, was an English guy, ran an orphanage for literally hundreds of boys and girls in England before they were ever even such a thing as wards of the state. You would just have to go make your way on the street like Oliver Twist, but he created this orphanage. Most mornings when they woke up, they had no food to eat and no money to buy the food they needed, most mornings. And so they would come down to the kitchen table, all of them hundreds, and they would pray. And I kid you not, bread trucks would break down outside the, the orphanage. Not just like, this was not like a once or twice. This was a regular thing for George Mueller's life. We miss out on people like Brennan Nanning, who was a Roman Catholic priest, who became an alcoholic, who fell in love with a woman, who left the priesthood to marry her and whose alcoholism ended their marriage. Talk about failure. Who's burnt out of ministry like three or four times publicly. You miss out I'm Brennan Manning, you miss out on Henry Nouwen who lived his life single and celibate despite profound struggles in his own sexuality and spent the end of his life. Henry Nowen's, like, was teaching at Harvard Divinity School, which at this time, like, that is not an aspiration that I have, but at this time in history, that was like a big deal. Henry Nouwen moved to Canada to live in a cooperative community with severely developmentally disabled adults. And he, nobody ever heard from, basically he faded from memory. He had a roommate that he literally had to change that guy's clothes every day. That's what Henry Nouwen did as a single guy. We need the past. We need the past, but we need to handle it rightly. We need the past because that teaches us to live faithfully today. We need the past because it teaches us to live faithfully today. So let me give you three things that you need as you run the path of his commandments. Three things. You need a running partner, a soundtrack, and a training manual. Isn't this cute? Aren't I doing a good job, guys? This is real creative. A running partner, a soundtrack, and a manual. You need a running partner. You need somebody just a few steps ahead of you and somebody a few steps behind you. The, the goal would be that you are being poured into even as you pour into others. I, I counted this morning. Do you know I'm in, like, eight mentoring situations? I'm in, like, three small groups with, like, ministry leaders, one of which is only okay. Um, I meet, I have a spiritual director. I, like, have, like, Rick, who's, like, a coach. I have my coach, Greg. There's, like, somebody else I'm not thinking. I mean, like, we have, like, about 20 people. Pay We're paying thousands of dollars to keep Kyle, like, hemmed in. Do you know what I mean? Like, we just don't. You want somebody a little bit ahead of you, you want somebody a little bit behind you, because when the road gets rough, they can say, I've run this part before. So that you can say when the road gets rough, I've run this part before. You also, it's a good idea to have a mentor who's both living and a mentor who is dead. By which I mean, when I was at Wheaton in my master's program, I had to choose a historical mentor, which meant I had to choose somebody who was dead or almost dead to write a paper on. My mentor was almost dead, and still is, uh, Eugene Peterson. Bless his heart. We then spent, everybody spent the whole semester reading their their historical mentor's work and then we reported on it. Man, was it encouraging. You need a historical mentor. You need a soundtrack because it sucks to work out without music. I remember very early on, still at Physique, I was like almost at the edge, I couldn't do it. And of all songs, Katy Perry, Eye of the Tiger comes on. (laughs) And at the very end of the set, I was like, I do have a champion inside of me, you know? (laughs) You need a soundtrack, and you need two songs on that playlist. You need a song that's at least 100 years old and a song that's no older than five years old. You need a song that's no younger than 100 years old and a song that's no older than five. Our first miscarriage about a year and a half ago, I'm in the middle of the night. Steph and I kept hearing this song that we've never done here. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. He hideth my soul in the cleft of a rock. It's a hymn. It's probably in the book under you. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. When we had another one this summer, we come back to church that Sunday and we're singing King of My Heart. Let the King of My Heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from, he is my song. Let the King of My Heart be the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves, he is my song. Do you know what the chorus of that is? It sucks. You are good. You are good. And the song ends, when the night is holding on to me, God is holding on two songs on the same playlist that say the same truth about God written hundreds of years apart you need two you need songs on your playlist you need a training manual you need scripture the reason that we spend so much time in this is not because like Kyle's really smart and we should pay to hear this although that's very flattering of you to think the reason we spend so much time on this is because Moses says these are not empty words they are our very life paul says that Israel's history was written for our instruction this book is literally all we have. And when the word of God is explained, God's voice is heard. And so we embed the Bible in everything because it's the manual. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, one of the last books of the New Testament, talks about running. And it, it says this. I think, Rebecca, it's the last one. Thanks. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion Who Now, some of us have this memorized as author and who initiates and perfects our faith. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, ultimately, our fear is that Jesus isn't the same, so we have to go back because he made sense there. Or we have to leave some of that behind because he wasn't as nice then as he is now. No, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever or as the message says he is always entirely himself what do you say church let's go to the gym huh let's pray God for the ways that we run away from what we ought to know we're sorry and in knowing names like C.S. Lewis and knowing names like George Mueller we actually know you and so father teach us a new kind of obedience an obedience that is long and in the same direction that we may run and the paths of your commands. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.